Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Monica Miller about her new book, Religion and Hip Hop, published by Rutledge just this year. The relationship between music and religion is a site of increasing interest to scholars within religious studies. Monica Miller explores the social processes and human activity related to hip-hop music and its accompanying cultural expressions. In Religion and Hip-Hop, she introduces us to various methods that have been used to examine hip-hop culture and the descriptive terrain of previous scholarship. What is possibly the most laudable aspect of Miller's effort are her continued and repeated explorations into the purposes, effects, and operations of theory and method in the study of religion. In this regard, she does not perform a theological or religious analysis of music or lyrics as a search for meaning, but rather examines the material productions of hip-hop culture and the manufactured zones of significance within various discourses. Miller looks at the public context of hip-hop culture and its relationship to larger social pathologies, the religious rhetoric and style of hip-hop knowledge productions or books written by hip-hop artists, and a visual ethnography of the dance culture of crumping, where the body is examined as a site of significance through aesthetics, style, taste, and dispositions. Very often, these interrogations challenge the category of religion in new ways and leave us asking what counts as religion and what exactly is left out. Altogether, Miller does a lot in this book, most of which we don't get to cover in great detail. In our conversation, we do discuss authorial authority, social constructionism, youth religious participation, the black church, KRS-One, morality, intentionality and habitus, complex subjectivity, postmodernism, classification, and many other interesting things. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Monica Miller about her great new book, Religion and Hip-Hop. How are you, Monica? Thanks for making some time to talk to me. I'm good, Christian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. Your book uh, is great. Uh, it does a lot of uh, uh, push forward as far as what we, what we can be doing in religious studies. And uh, I hope a lot of people listen to what you what you have to say. So, thank you. Um, before we kind of get into the book a little bit, uh, could you could you kind of tell us a little bit about? Uh, how your interest in religion came about and people that might have been influential in, in how you study religion? Sure. So, well, I always start off this question by reminding people and perhaps, well, perhaps reminding myself and letting people know that I was supposed to be a lawyer and not a religionist. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I've always been fascinated, um, even before, you know, undergraduate, uh, studies, I was always fascinated by this idea of a simple idea, but a complex one, right? Um, and that is, why do people do what they do? And so having always been sort of concerned with 
complex social and uh, political issues, um, even going back to middle school and high school, being concerned with, you know, prison systems and, you know, why do we have poverty and what is this racism thing about? I always, always sort of went back to this question um, of why do people do what they do? And so I did my studies at Fordham University um, in in the Bronx, in, in the South Bronx, and I was a religious studies major, and I thought that that track would take me to law school. And so I prepared myself to go to law school to sort of understand, uh, you know, to kind of get a deeper understanding of why is it that people do what they do and how is it that we can sort of affect change. Once I came to the realization that law is perhaps a little bit more fixed uh, than one would think, I wanted the freedom of an academic. And so um, I studied closely with a professor at Fordham University uh, who was a student of James Cone's, uh, James, you know, James Cone at Union Theological Seminary, having studied uh, black theology. And he encouraged me to sort of take up liberation theology, to take up black theology. I still was very much convinced that I was supposed to be a lawyer. And so what I did is I said, well, okay, um, I will do a master's of theological studies. And then after that, I'll go to law school. And once I uh, started getting deeper into religious studies and theory method, I realized that what I really wanted to be was an academic. And so I would go on to do uh, the PhD actually in theology, ethics, and human science, which is an interesting uh, sort of piece because as you are well aware, I am highly critical of a certain brand of um, theological scholarship. And so having always sort of been interested in why do people do what they do, um, I, religion and culture is an area that, that always fascinated me, and popular culture is something that I always sort of felt like got scant uh, sort of attention in academic, um, across disciplines, really. And so that's sort of how I come to uh, the study of religion, and be, starting off in theology, moving my way into theory and method. And it's interesting, really, the, the, the time before I got into the PhD program, so throughout my master's degree, throughout my undergraduate work, I was really sort of situated in this sort of black theology of liberation, this sort of liberation theological motif, very, you know, being very much interested in racial parity and, you know, sort of social justice, but also being very frustrated by what I sort of cited as the limitation of theological scholarship, namely it being more confessional and apologetic in nature. Um, and so being interested in religion and culture, obviously I was interested in what we would more problematically call non-institutional forms of religion. And so being fascinated by popular culture, being fascinated by the uses of religion in popular culture, I sort of found myself struggling with a framework, struggling with language. How do we talk about the ways in which, the many ways in which the religious sort of makes its emergence and its appearance in, uh, you know, this thing that we're calling popular culture, the study of culture, material culture, uh, more generally. So that really sort of uh, takes me into uh, social theory and critical social thought, which I did not get until my PhD program at Chicago Theological Seminary. And so I decided uh, for my uh, PhD work that I'd focus uh, that it'd be very much theoretically focused and sort of situated in a certain kind of social criticism that was at that point new for me. So really, my PhD program sort of introduces me to postmodern theory more generally. Um, now, Monica, if I 
was looking on paper at you, <laughs> and I read this book. I would have never guessed that you would write this. Uh, was there, now, was there some kind of uh, some kind of event that happened that you know made this particular shift in your kind of analytical perspective? Uh, just because you know, coming from Drew, coming from Chicago, uh, you know, these right. institutions, I would have never guessed that you would have written this book. So, was there something particular that you were like? that really affected you? I'm really glad you asked that question, Christian, because it's a question <laughs> that I get all of the time. And, you know, given uh, the level of criticism that I sort of wage, not only at theology, but also the sort of theological inheritance in the contemporary study uh, of religion, I often get asked, well, why do you have a degree, you know, well, two degrees in theological studies? And one of the things that I'll say is that it really wasn't until I took up the PhD and began the coursework at Chicago Theological Seminary. Um, it wasn't until then that I really start to sort of get my hands dirty in postmodern theory. And I'm thinking of two courses in particular that were highly formative for me at Chicago Theological Seminary. Um, one of them was a course on Judith Butler taught by Ken Stone. Another, another course was... Um, a course by Ted Jennings, uh, where he taught us about Derrida and Derrida on religion, and also my advisor's courses, Boom Young So's courses on uh, cultural studies and Marxist, you know, uh, sort of cultural critiques. And it was at that point that I began to, I don't, I didn't fully have the aha moment then, but it was at that point um, that I know for, that I began to sort of know that theory and method was really where I sort of wanted to situate myself. But I have to be honest with you, my aha moment didn't necessarily come until I was 150 pages into what is now religion and hip hop, which was not religion and hip hop then. <laughs> Although I say that, um, you know, when I was working on my dissertation, I was writing the book that I wish I had, which became religion and hip hop at the time, because there wasn't any source material for me to really sort of say what I wanted to say. I didn't really have one book in particular that gave me uh, the language that I needed to sort of, um, you know, make this sort of critique and sort of advancement in this area of religion and hip hop that I, I wanted to. And so this book originally uh, was about the quest for meaning and going beyond the black church. And having been very frustrated by the sort of what I cite as the, you know, overtly pathological and nihilistic sort of critiques of youth culture and hip hop culture more generally, I wanted to be able to prove uh, the uses of religion in hip-hop as a sort of quest for meaning. So not religious in um, a strict sense, right, but as a way to understand life in a more fundamental sort of way. And I was using the motif of the quest for meaning as a sort of uh, religious quest, um, very much relying on the work of Anthony Penn, who um, I would say has probably had the, the largest influence on my intellectual development in a number of areas. And so it wasn't until I was 150 pages into religion and hip hop and having stumbled on Russell McCutcheon's work, who um, he's been so gracious and, and he, he was this sort of virtual mentor to me for so long time while I was writing my dissertation. I literally thought I was going crazy. And I said, I, I, you know, something is not right here. I'm not comfortable. Perhaps in this highly reflexive moment, I was saying to myself, I am not comfortable in the way in which that I'm going and this, this approach that I'm taking, uh, in this book and in my, you know, sort of 
and this deep desire to show that hip-hop was not as pathological as these exaggerated journalistic claims were positing, that it was over, you know, sort of relying on this trope of the quest for meaning. And so Russell's work in religious studies really gave me the language and theory and method and really sort of put the idea on the pedestal um, that when we talk about religion, we're talking about the social world in these really in these non-unique sort of ways. And so having communicated with him over email for quite some time and, um, you know, being challenged by these ideas, um, have uh, Russell was fantastic and, you know, sort of directing me uh, to various scholars' work and having sort of dug into to those works, such as Bruce Lincoln, for example, I really, the, the, the conclusion of my book is called Beginning Again, and that's really, in fact, what I did, Christian. I had to begin again. I literally sort of deleted those 150 pages and sort of began again, although obviously there are still traces of, my former thinking in this book, which of course cannot be taken out uh, so quickly, right? But I did have that aha moment. But for me, it didn't necessarily coalesce until I sat down and worked on what became religion and hip hop. That sounds so wonderful and so sad at the same time. <laughs> Deleting yeah, 150 pages of work. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, uh, you know, this this book uh, is dealing specifically with hip hop, but you talk a lot about popular culture and I know a lot of your other work deals with popular culture. Could you, could you talk about, uh, for you, what, what's the relationship between popular culture and religion and how, how does, uh, you know, one of the things you're really interested in is kind of, uh, the, the boundaries of this thing we call religion. So how does popular culture challenge that category in possibly new or, uh, exciting ways? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I talk about in religion and hip-hop is one of the the, the sort of more pressing concerns for uh, myself in this undertaking was that I felt like the, the scholarship that comes before obviously does this amazing amount of work and putting the study of hip-hop in particular on, you know, the larger academic map, right, on the humanities map more generally, I felt that the category of religion, which is that thing which we're sort of exploring through the medium or the the modality of popular culture and culture and material culture, more generally, it, that very category remained under-interrogated or uninterrogated, really. So in other words, scholars were talking about this thing called religion in hip hop or this thing called religion in popular culture or religion and, you know, culture. But it is that and that separates these two signifiers that are really not, you know, so different from the other. And so it's an interesting question, Christian, because even the title of my book, which I didn't necessarily give it this title, the title of my book is misleading because it actually... Um, sort of situates religion as something that is fundamentally and qualitatively distinct from hip-hop. And part of my argument is that and that separates these two signifiers is is a manufactured construction. There is no and there is no sacred and profane. And so for me, when you talk about the category of religion and this thing called popular culture or culture or material culture, you know, however we sort of want to slice and dice it, it's really talk about the social world. And so for me, that was the largest sort of aha, you know, that, that, you know, I took away from this project was it's really talk about the social world, right? So when scholars, you know, talk about the category of religion that 
you know, they're using this linguistic housing to really talk about the social world. And, you know, theology is kind of talk about the self and uses of religion and hip hop um, are, are sort of deployed for a variety of interests. And what I find fascinating is to kind of dig deeper into what these varieties of interests are, these social interests. Why is it that religion sort of remains a consistent stock ingredient in the culture of hip hop. That's what I find fascinating. But for me, I wanted to be able to treat the category of religion in the same way in which we might treat the category of race or the same way in which we might treat the category of gender. So in other words, you know, what one group over here calls religion, another group over here might call race and another group over here might call gender. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about three distinct things. What we're talking about is that groups of people in a variety of places have chosen to classify and ontologize in certain kinds of ways. And so for me, digging deeper into the why categorize this in this kind of way, why does 50 Cent want to use religion or, or you know, fashion his book after a Bible when he's really kind of talking about this mental alchemy of realism, you know, for me, that was the more interesting thing, you know, as opposed to trying to find the religion of Tupac or the religion of DMX. I found, you know, that, you know, taking on looking at religion as social formation and process and considering what social interests drive these uses of religion, I found that to be, um, you know, a, a way more interesting project. Yeah. Yeah. You did a very good job too. Um, the the other uh, component here uh, in your, in your title, um, hip hop. Uh, now you're not just talking about music. So could you could mm -hmm. you talk about what hip hop and hip hop culture, uh, how you kind of define that, and how you use it in the book? Yeah, it's another great question because again, it's a contested term. And so, as you know, in the book, I sort of you know rely on Raquel Rivera's idea of hip hop zone, um, perhaps because sort of, you know, it had that more theoretical sort of ring to me. Um, and, and really, it's a contested term like the, the, the category or the term uh, religion. But one of the things I will say, Christian, is that, you know, uh, similar to my other frustrations with earlier treatments of religion and hip hop, one of the things that frustrated me about previous scholarship on religion and hip hop was that it sort of over relied on the lyrical wing of hip hop as a stand in for hip hop culture. And so what that means is that, um, obviously, you know, hip-hop is highly critiqued and, you know, criticized in the larger thinking and listening public. And so often, you know, it, it would often be the case that, you know, the critiques that would come down on rap music for their lyrical content would sort of be this more generalized, you know, sort of critique on hip-hop culture, which is bigger than music. And it's always been bigger than music, right? And so hip-hop is many different things to many different type of people. You know, hip-hop is now in this, you know, sort of global and transnational sort of phase. And so, you know, hip-hop is certainly music, but it's also an industry, right? And it's also a way of being in the world. And some people wax more philosophical with it as, you know, a, a sort of life philosophy or, you know, it's a, some people talk about the fashion of hip-hop. So it's just grown so big that we really cannot, you know, no longer can we sort of 
isolated to the lyrical wing. And so one of the ideas behind religion and hip hop was to sort of include, but also go beyond, you know, isolating the, the, the religious content or what we perceive to be the religious content in the lyrical to say, hey, listen, you know, hip hop is bigger than music, that we're talking about documentary films, we're talking about branding, uh, you know, we're talking about books being produced by rappers, we're talking about, you know, the way that hip hop sort of becomes pathologized in, you know, um, the civic face or the political face of hip hop, you know, such as the nappy headed hoe case, which I talk about um, in the beginning of the book. And so I wanted to sort of expand what we purport to mean by hip hop. So in other words, not only do I see this as a work of theory and method, but also a sort of work at expanding data, hip hop data. Yeah. Um, now, uh, yeah, I want to I want to ask you about this idea of uh, these kind of social social pathologies that you talk about, mm-hmm. in the, uh, or I guess in the first chapter. Um, one, I guess, one of the the kind of key questions or the key concerns uh, about what you call, I think, the public context of hip hop is this idea: is is hip hop the cause or the effect of these social pathologies? Um, could, could you talk about how how hip-hop is used as a scapegoat in this kind of conversation? Yeah, so, you know, this is perfect timing, Christian, for this question. <laughs> you know, I just finished up a piece on, uh, you know, the way that Kanye West unveiled his new song, The New Slaves, on the, you know, 66 buildings around the world, you know, and, you know, thinking about uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's speech uh, that she gave at, you know, um, you know, recently at the college commencement, Bowie State, you know, and, and, you know, in that speech, she talks about, you know, um, how, you know, we need to aspire to be more, you know, in the, in the black community, more than, you know, rappers and ballers, right? Um, and so that, to me, um, along with the, the speech that, you know, President Obama gave at Morehouse, that, that kind of, you know, that sort of invoking of this, you know, these myths of cultural depravity, I feel that hip-hop disproportionately becomes scapegoated, you know, as sort of the cause of social ills of particular marginal communities. And my argument is that, you know, all of the social ills and the various forms of violences that we see evidenced in and witnessed in and through, you know, hip-hop is just as American as cherry pie that, you know, hip-hop is not necessarily the cause, but it's also the effect of larger, you know, structures of violence. And so really that you know, kind of pushing up against that, you know, pathologizing of hip hop culture, which is really becomes a sort of stand in and a proxy for, you know, this pathology of, you know, the way in which we police lower, um, you know, you know, those on the on the, you know, on the margins of the margins of particular communities. So if we're sort of scapegoating and talking about, you know, uh, Black folk, for example, will use hip hop as a proxy and a scapegoat to really critique, you know, those perceived stereotypes of poor black people. And so I really wanted to push up against this idea. And, you know, we see it all the time, whether it's Bill O'Reilly, you know, in the past or, you know, whether it's something as simple as, you know, a pastor in Philadelphia, you know, um, who, you know, you know, 
in the past year asked, you know, Meek Mill to apologize for the song he wrote, his song, Amen. And, and my, you know, my thinking is why, <laughs> right? You know, these are artists and they're not necessarily politicians. And sure, they have a social responsibility just given the weight of their work and how many, you know, listeners and viewers they're able to attract and maintain. Um, but, you know, that, that, that kind of weight that we, we put on, on hip hop culture, I think is, is, is highly disproportionate and is certainly calculated. And so, you know, I take on what I call the public face, the civic face of hip hop culture to sort of, you know, give, uh, a larger context for, you know, these social pathologies and, um, you know, and, and I do think that's connected to how scholars sort of approach the emergence or the face of religion in hip hop in particular, but really popular culture more generally. Right. And because we see, you know, how is it that a rapper who's going to talk about murder and violence and, and, you know, you know, calling women particular names how is it that they're going to wear a Jesus piece and thank God at the award ceremony? So for many, it comes as this, you know, contradiction, this stark contradiction that should not be. Um, but failing to realize, and perhaps because I'm a religionist and academic who studies religion, I think about, you know, these things more deeply and more intensely than, than others do. But religion for me has always come hand in hand, always sort of gone hand in hand with violence, right? Whether it's personal violence and structural violence and, you know, violence and historical violence, that violence is never, you know, sort of disconnected um, from, you know, these ideas like religion that we assume to be, you know, qualitatively, you know, um, affirmative and moral and good. And so for me, again, that is the problem of the sacred and the profane and how we approach the category of religion and culture um, in a general sense. Um, now, I wish we could talk about everything you do in this book because you, you do so much. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have enough time. So uh, I, I want to uh, jump ahead here to what you call hip-hop knowledge productions. Mm-hmm. Could, could you talk about what, what these are and, and possibly uh, – you, you talk a lot, a lot about authority in these and why authors write them, why they write them in a particular way. Uh, could you talk about this? Yeah. So, again, this was uh, the chapter two that you're talking about, the Don't Judge a Book by its cover, um, was sort of my attempt to extend the conversation, the academic conversation on religion and hip-hop beyond that lyrical face, right? And so this chapter specifically looks at um, books written by rappers in many instances co-authored um, with, uh, you know, folks such as uh, Robert Greene um, in the case of 50 Cent. And, you know, 2009 was an interesting moment with the uh, publication of uh, KRS-One's The Gospel of Hip Hop and uh, 50 Cent and Robert Greene's book, The 50th Law, uh, that they came out with, which was obvious, you know, it, when you look at this book, Christian, if you literally just saw it sitting on a table somewhere, you would literally think that you're walking past this uh, King James version of the Bible. It literally looks like um, a Bible. And the last of uh, what I call the knowledge productions uh, from 2009 being uh, Riz's uh, Tao of Wu, which again um, brings in a lot of Eastern uh, sort of uh, religiosities and ideas and philosophies. And so I thought they were all interesting in the way in which they sort of poached religion or philosophy for uh, a variety of reasons. And, you know, um, 
really, so for example, uh, with the 50 Cent book, you know, again, it's the marketing of religion that I found fascinating. You know, why is it that this book looks like a Bible, but when you begin to read it, it's really this self-help book, right? <laughs> and more interestingly, he really relies on, you know, the the capital and the, the sort of uh, celebrity status of, you know, self-help guru Robert Greene, you know, to kind of give this book this sort of um, authoritative legitimation that it might not otherwise have just sort of being written by a rapper who's been shot nine times, right? And so what I decided to do was to sort of look at the uh, religious and philosophical you know, the aesthetics of these kinds of constructions throughout this book and what role does the religious play um, in these books rather than trying to search for the religion of these books, right? And so really, religion and hip-hop, what that chapter in particular really highlights is that, you know, in a departure from previous scholarship um, on religion and hip-hop, I no longer need to sort of ask this question of what is religious about hip-hop? What is religious about Tupac song, Ghetto Gospel? Or what is religious about Robert Greene and 50 Cent, you know, the 50th law, right? So rather than asking what is religious, which obviously for me sort of presupposes this thing called religion, it presupposes that we're all on the same page regarding how we ought to, how scholars ought to think about uh, this category, um, so in a departure from that, I, I'm really interested in, you know, what do these uses of religion in X, Y, and Z accomplish for competing social and cultural interests? And, you know, as this chapter, Don't Judge, Book, Don't Judge a Book by its cover, sort of highlights and uncovers is that rappers use religion and, you know, this weightiness of philosophy for a variety and a host of reasons. And more often than not, just like religion makes use of hip hop, um, in similar ways, in similar manners, um, the, the the reason, you know, that they're able to kind of put religion to work or put hip-hop to work in this, you know, certain kind of way is, um, is I wouldn't say it's a marketing scheme, but it's for marketing, right? And so religion is something that already comes with a certain kind of prepackaged weight, a prepackaged kind of capital, um, and, and it, it kind of speaks to certain demographics in a certain kind of way. In the same way, also as religion, uh, as a, you know, show in religion and hip hop, same way, you know, if we're talking about the market maintenance of uh, black churches, you know, with, you know, the, the membership, you know, especially among young people declining, you know, um, in regards to institutional religion across the board, right? So across, you know, across race and, and across class, um, you know, churches will also use hip-hop as a way to kind of expand their market. So, um, you know, religion is not unique in that way, that it does become, you know, uh, one of those areas that rappers are able to latch onto and use as a way to kind of mark their books. And KRS-1, I think, Christian really does this most effectively in the gospel of hip-hop. This past semester, I just, you know, uh, taught for the first time um, a course that I've been wanting to teach for a long time, the sociology of religion and hip hop. And in that class, we took a look at Karis once the gospel of hip hop. And I asked the class that we consider this book in a different way, right? So not necessarily looking at what kind of religion is Karis one trying to sell here, 
but what does the work of the use of religion accomplish for KRS-One in this book? And, you know, I, I think we all ended up more confused um, at the end because we didn't know why, like, why does it need to be a Bible? Why does, you know, he proclaims that hip-hop is going to be, the you know, this new religion on earth in the next 100 years. And, you know, I think it's this sort of, like, brilliant marketing platform to kind of, you know, give hip hop this power that it otherwise would not have. Hip hop is going to be a new religion. I'm the prophet of this new religion. And if you want to know how to be a real hip hop, you've got to buy this book. Obviously, because like the Bible, this book contains all the kind of esoteric and secret knowledge that you're going to need in order to know. <laughs> and so, you know, again, I think that if we um, sort of step back and take a different perspective to this thing that we see, that we call religion, not seeing it so antithetical to what we might call the secular, or not seeing it as much as a contradiction to uh, what it means to be hip hop, then a whole variety of you know social interests begin to emerge. And I mean, I just find it fascinating. Yeah. So uh, something that I'll, I want to ask you here, um, because Karis One is known for being. Uh, you know, somewhat philosophical about hip hop. And um, so wh- what do we do about uh, intentionality? Do, do you think, uh, I mean, how, how do we deal with that? How do we determine that? I mean, is KRS-One uh, intentionally using this rhetoric, do you think, uh, for certain to seek to authorize his, uh, his book? Or perhaps this is socially constructed for him in a, in a way that he is unconscious of it? What, what do you think? Oh, that's a big question, Christian. <laughs> I, I, I have a continuing, uh, you know, sort of wrestle with this thing called intentionality, especially, you know, when I, um, you know, in my in my ethnographic work, you know, intentionality is one of those tricky things. As you know, in religion and hip hop, I do rely heavily, um, among other social theorists, on Pierre Bourdieu's work. And so for me, Habitus has been able to, as a concept, it's sort of been able to help me sort of get beyond being sort of hung up on this intentionality. But it is an important thing to the extent that a lot of people writing at the intersections of, um, I'd probably say religion and pop culture. I don't want to sort of over-determine that um, as exhaustive. But I can say uh, for those writing at the intersections of religion and hip-hop, we often write about uh, religious uses, say, for example, in rap music, in this way where we assume that the artist is being highly calculated, um, that, the, that the artist's strategy is highly calculated, that there's this certain kind of um, intentionality uh, at work on behalf of the artist. And so, you know, using Karis One's, you know, the gospel of hip hop as an example, I would say, sure. I think Karis One is, um, you know, conscious of what he is doing to the extent that perhaps he feels he's not as relevant as he used to be. Um, perhaps he needs to sort of, you know, um, you know, uh, get back that that spiritual authority that he might have once had when hip hop was, you know, supposedly only conscious. I read that book as, you know, having a, a large amount of romanticism at work and nostalgia at work for the way hip hop used to be. Right. So, um, like many folk, whether uh, they consider themselves to be hip hop or not, that things change over time, um, and there's this sort of nostalgia at work and, you know, what do we need to do to get it back to its more spiritual roots, its more fundamental roots, the way 
that it used to be, right? I mean, even thinking about uh, the African-American community, I think we do that a lot with civil rights rhetoric, you know, given now that we're supposedly in this post-civil rights moment, that we are in this post-civil rights moment, supposedly in this kind of post-racial moment, right? That this kind of yearning for the way things used to be. And so I think he latches onto the concept of religion to sort of um, do that heavy lifting for him and to kind of put, you know, his own interests to work in that sort of uh, way. He highly, you know, he, it's very interesting, Karis, when, you know, as I read, you know, passages over and over again, I'm like, oh my goodness, he sounds just like Tillich here. And I was like <laughs> seeing different theologians in different places. And I'm wondering like, who is he reading? You know, yeah. He's, He's so smart at this. He's doing such a good job at this. But, you know, intentionality is one of those tricky things. And it's something that I've decided not to um, sort of be, you know, be hung up on in my own work. Because at the end of the day, I think I'm too much of a Marxist to think that we're always fully aware of why we do what we do. I think habitus is real. Um, I do think that, you know, the unconscious is real. And I think that. Uh, certain things become dur- so durable over um, a stretch of time that we, we don't, you know, we do things out of habit, um, you know, and especially when we talk about religion and communities of color, um, that, that certainly is uh, something that is highly durable. And so I think it's mixed. But I'm not, when I'm writing and, and I'm working at the intersections of my work in religion and culture, I'm not as, con- I'm not concerned with uh, intentionality. I don't think it's something we can empirically measure. Sure. Um, so this leads a a little bit into kind of some of what other people have done in, in the field. Um, and you, you have a whole chapter on this, uh, kind of broadly and then, uh, the following one more narrowly. So I wonder if you could kind of just, uh, give us, uh, your uh, idea of what, uh, what are some of the trends, I guess, would be the best way Mm -hmm. to describe this as far as, uh, methodology. Yeah. So, you know, the trends, um, you know, for me have mostly, for me, they've been highly uh, sort of theological. And again, um, as a reminder, as I mentioned earlier, part of what I'm trying to do, Christian and religion and hip hop is to really, I mean, yes, hip hop is my data, but as a scholar of religion, this is the, for me, the object that's under examination here, right? Um, and so I really wanted to interrogate more forcefully this thing that we call religion. So in other words, I kind of want to sort of interrogate what is it that we as scholars are on the search for? What are we on the hunt for? What are we doing, right? And we often try to do with the way that the religious emerges in hip-hop culture is to sort of give it a certain kind of coherence through this theological inheritance. And it's often the case that when we do this kind of work, that we we sort of automatically invoke um, a certain kind of um, apologeticism or a certain, you know, kind of confessionality. And I wanted to do something very different. So um, chapter three and the word became flesh, hip-hop culture and the incoherence of religion tries to get at, you know, some of these uh, trends that I take up more forcefully um, in Chapter 4. So looking at the religious stylings of hip-hop and, you know, what are these academic trends? And, um, again, the way that I kind of uh, classify these trends, they're not, uh, they're certainly not exhaustive. They're only representative um, of what I feel 
um, have been the more common approaches to the study of religion in hip hop. And so, um, as you know, one of those trends that I cite are, you know, is the black church in the spirit of market maintenance. So a brand of work that is interested in religion and hip hop in order to kind of save a dying church or in order to kind of create a hip hop sort of ministry. And my uh, sort of argument and, and my thinking is that that can be a stand in for rigorous academic uh, sort of work on this category of religion and hip hop, um, that there's a certain kind of hegemony, you know, at work there if we're just going to be concerned with the church apparatus, say, for example. Um, and then there's this sort of trend that I call the critical and the lyrical rapper as Christian prophet, where I specifically look at the work of Michael Eric Dyson and Cornell West, whose work certainly. Um, whose hard work has certainly helped to put uh, the study of hip-hop on the academic terrain and the humanities map in particular, but again, the way in which they treat uh, the religious and hip-hop culture and rap music uh, in particular is in this way, is in this kind of prophetic Afro-revolutionary sort of Christian, you know, um, sort of typing, right? So in this, in this trend, you know, someone like Tupac might become this black, you know, liberation theologian. So again, in this hegemonic kind of way, we sort of map on, you know, our own theological framework onto these artists that probably don't even know what black theology of liberation <laughs> <laughs> means, right, um, for, for them and their, for, for their own work. And this last trend of which I was a part of and have traces of is this hip-hop is a sort of quest for meaning um, that we take up in a 2009 special issue of Culture and Religion Journal that's dedicated to the topic of hip-hop and religion where we, you know, really rely on the work that Anthony Penn has done, um, specifically in Noise and Spirit, uh, his 2003 text uh, published by NYE Press, and also... Um, this idea of complex subjectivity, his own theory of black religion uh, that is developed in his work, Terror and Triumph. And that is really the trend that I come out of and also the trend that I'm trying to interrogate uh, sort of at the same time. So in the ways that I, I, I try to classify uh, the common approaches in these trends in the study of religion and hip hop, it's also sort of a way to um, look at the way that African American religion treats the category or the modality of culture as well um, in the discourse. So it, it becomes sort of the work of theory and method for religion and hip hop, but really also uh, for African, the study of African American uh, religion more generally. Yeah, and so throughout the book, and from what you've said already too, you you seem to have an interesting relationship with with Anthony Penn's work. Uh, could you could you explain to us what uh, Penn's Penn's theory of this idea of a complex subjectivity is? Yeah. So, well, you know, I as I mentioned in the book, complex subjectivity is this you know, uh, theory of religion that he develops um, in his work, Terror and Triumph, which for me um, really sets forth uh, his work in theory method in the study of African-American um, religion. And the way that he, you know, talks about it, you know, um, the, the, the way he describes it is this recognition of and response to the elemental feeling for complex subjectivity and the accompanying transformation of consciousness that allows for the historically manifested battle of the terror of, terror of fixed identity, right? And so charting the ways in which black bodies you know, sort of move from um, object to subject position, 
is the way in which he sort of develops his uh, theory of religion, which for me is an important theory of religion because it does two things that um, I think are not as common in the study of African-American religion and probably in the study of religion um, at all, which is to, um, you know, sort of ground a theory of religion in historicity and in history itself, right, and also to take bodies seriously. And because he's concerned, you know, with black bodies, he's looking at the ways in which black bodies move from the terror of the fixity of white supremacy, white supremacy and how they sort of gain a certain amount of um, agency. And in this, in the development of complex subjectivity as a theory of religion, it relies on a category of experience and also very much relies on, you know, this idea of conversion that's sort of made possible by an elemental feeling, right? That um, for me, you know, I talk about that's kind of based on this triadic structure, Christians. So um, this triadic structure is kind of um, constructed in a way that uh, you know, has the subject confronting, you know, historical identity and then wrestling with their old consciousness. He very much relies on, you know, William James and Charles Long and definitely, you know, the work of Tillich. And, you know, at the end, the subject sort of embraces this new consciousness, you know, that gives rise to this new mode of behavior that will affect their relationship with, you know, the community of believers um, who have had similar responses to similar elemental feelings. And, and, and so for me, again, that theory religion does really important work by taking the subject obviously seriously taking the body seriously taking history seriously but it felt like it was too linear for me and I felt like this uh, thing that he calls inner impulse this deep stirring and this elemental feeling um, and the ways in which these things kind of find expression in and through these yearnings uh, that are sort of based on motivations and consciousness I was very curious about this and because obviously as I'm getting more into um, you know, uh, the work of those that are more critical of religious studies, I'm, you know, being concerned with the phenomenology of this. It's how do we know and why do we need to be concerned uh, with consciousness and why do we need to kind of theorize the movement of, of religion or religious experience in this kind of way? And can't we take subjectivity, you know, sort of seriously and the historical struggle seriously without kind of positing this desired movement, this interior you know, this interiorized sort of quest for meaning. And so because I love this theory of religion so much, I kind of wanted to take what Anthony put Anthony Penn puts on the inside of subjectivity and bring it to the outside so that it can become, um, you know, uh, something uh, that we can debate about and talk about, right, so that we can make it um, a social product that can be, you know, um, examined. And so I take that and I kind of give it this, you know, sort of postmodern spin uh, to it. But for me, it's a very important um, theory of religion. But beyond, you know, his own theory of complex subjectivity, Christian, um, I really think his work in Noise and Spirit, his 2003 uh, work, really, really situates the study of religion and hip-hop in an important kind of way. And that way is to sort of expand the varieties of religion. So really, in my thinking, you know, um, in my mind, before Anthony Penn's Noise and Spirit in 2003, um, the way in which scholars and, you know, um, analysts were, were investigating the religious and hip-hop culture was in a very, in a strictly Christian theological kind of way. And so while he certainly hasn't abandoned the theological, what he gives us in Noise and Spirit is to say, listen, if we're going to talk about the religious and rap music and the spiritual sensibilities of rap music, we have to talk about 
the, 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 the religious density um, that is in, in rap music, right? So it's not just Christian, it's, you know, humanist and it's atheist and it's um, Islamic, right? And it's all of these kinds of things that are getting very scant kind of attention. Um, and so, yes, it is my sort of uh, love-hate relationship uh, <laughs> with complex subjectivity and really kind of um, trying to sort of unearth these intellectual inheritances that we that are very common in the study of African-American religion. And as you know, uh, in, in this chapter, Inside Out, I really kind of take on, um, you know, the problematics of the traces of William James and, you know, Charles Long and, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and really kind of think, really trying to interrogate what we mean by a quest for meaning. But um, I will say that I think one of the most important aspects of Anthony Penn's work is really trying to um, expand the religious beyond more traditional approach to the religious that is uh, evidence in the study of African-American religion to really be inclusive of non-institutional forms of religion or, you know, those ideas of religion that are not strictly Christian in nature. And so very early on and courageously, Anthony Penn was kind of, you know, putting um, his finger on the pulse of a, a much more robust terrain of uh, religiosity and hip hop culture than ever before. Um, could you go into some of the specifics about how you, you bring the inside out, so to speak, uh, through this idea of play and habitus and social constructionism? Because I think you do. I think that's an awesome part of the book. Oh, well, thank you. So, I mean, part of what I do there is to, you know, I had to kind of think, well, this isn't, you know, this is a theory of religion that, um, you know, as you know, in the book, I kind of take this Derridian, you know, faithful unfaithfulness. And so if I'm going to be a good heir of the tradition, um, you know, of this theory of complex subjectivity, you know, there's a certain kind of way in which I have to do it, right? So um, I can't just passively consume it, but I have to kind of, you know, critique it so that it might live in a different kind of way. And so, um, you know, as I show the traces of its intellectual inheritances, as I mentioned, Charles, you know, William James and Charles Long and showing that Talikian inheritance kind of in, you know, Charles Long and then kind of questioning what do we mean by this quest for meaning and, you know, what do we mean by the subject? And one of the things I forgot to mention, Christian, was, you know, where Anthony Penn and I probably also depart is how we treat subjectivity and what do we mean by the subject. And it's probably also comes out in the chapter on faith in the flesh where um, I look at the um, documentary rise um, that chronicles crowning and clump, crump dancing in South Central L.A. And, you know, for me, bodies are always and already discursive. And so um, Anthony Penn and I probably uh, would disagree over how we treat fleshy bodies or how we treat materiality uh, more generally. And you know, I always chuckle, I teach this uh, to my students when I'm talking about identity and difference in post-modernity. And, you know, um, I remember this piece that Bill Hooks wrote, you know, where she's talking about, you know, blackness and post-modern theory. And you know, why would we, you know, like want to erase something, like want to erase a body that you just got, you know, uh, you know, not too long ago, or that just received a certain kind of um, legibility, but, you know, I have this interesting relationship between materiality and that which we call the discursive because for me, language is important, and the moment uh, that we begin to talk about bodies, we're already sort of signifying in a discursive kind of way, 
And so I, I think I also treat subjectivity um, a little bit differently than Anthony Penn would try to do. And so what I do in Inside Out, uh, theoretically, is I try to identify um, areas that I think need sort of updating or a certain kind of postmodern <laughs> facelift, if you will. And one of those areas is sort of introducing um, Derrida's concept of playing as a way to kind of push back against Penn's, what I think is Penn's center of uh, consciousness, um, which for me, I argue, is sort of grounded in this intellectual inheritance of a certain kind of phenomenology, this too generous tradition um, of religiosity that that I don't necessarily know if if it's Penn's intention, but it certainly comes in and through uh, these modernist kind of conversation partners um, that he has, right? So um, for me, Derrida's idea of play is certainly um, very important in that um, it sort of gives more flexibility, right? That there always will be a center, uh, but we also need to kind of loosen the structure up for uh, more play and, 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 and more uh, a more kind of flexibility. And, and through this idea of der- you know, Derridian play, I also wanted to kind of push back on what I felt was the kind of interiorization of meaning um, in the work of complex subjectivity. So this assumption of meaning as a kind of actual presence you know, of something that's on the interior comportment of subjectivity itself, this kind of intentionality. And I felt that that idea needed further probing. probing. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, really these, these um, you know, theoretical moments that take place, uh, Christian, in this chapter, Inside Out, is my searching for language that can help me sort of put my finger on what I feel is troubling, <laughs> yeah. you know, to me. And so um, coupled with, you know, Derrida's concept of play, I sort of move into uh, this idea of religious habitus, which is obviously not a new idea, making use of uh, Bourdieu's work. And for me, that's very, very helpful in uh, getting, you know, my hands dirty and going deeper with this idea of inner impulse and elemental feeling and saying, listen, you know, habitus is real, right? There's, um, yes, there's a certain kind of logic, you know, to practice, but there's also uh, this durability and this, you know, um, you know, thing that happens over time where we're not always fully aware of why we do what we do, that, you know, a large part of why we do what we do remains unexamined, you know, amongst ourselves and subjects, right? And so I wanted to use produce work on, and, and habitus as a way to kind of rethink intentionality and sort of rethink, um, you know, consciousness um, in that we don't necessarily need to treat the rap artist as this highly conscious subject who's being very intentional all the time about their uses of religion or any rap artist that makes use of religion is a believer, <laughs> right? And I kind of wanted to sort of push back up against that idea. And then, as you know, um, the third theory, uh, the third theorist that I kind of bring in uh, for this theoretical moment of Inside Out is, um, you know, Russell McCutcheon's work and Mallory Nye's work and thinking about religion as uh, a non-unique social formation and construction. So really taking up Russell's idea of, you know, what it means to be a critic and not a caretaker of the academic study of religion. And I think for me, it is this last piece, which is the most formative, which obviously is taken up in the conclusion um, of the book. And, you know, in this area, I'm bringing in Foucault and, you know, Chomsky and Bruce Lincoln and Jonathan Z. Smith and all of these wonderful thinkers that the work of uh, Russell McCutcheon has really helped to uh, sort of introduce into, um, 
you know, into my thinking, uh, this part for me is the most helpful in that when we talk about this idea of religion, this category of religion, you know, we're not talking about something uh, that is separated by that and, right, religion and hip-hop or the sacred and uh, the profane or the sacred and the secular that, you know, we write in a way where we assume these things to be sort of self-evident and a priori and sui generis, but at the end of the day, although the, this is the field's dominant approach and disposition um, that is sort of inherited through, you know, folk like Otto and Tillich and Schleiermacher, um, you know, this, you know, this, this is fictitious and, and, and perhaps there is a better way in which scholars ought to treat these things. And so really what I try to do in this chapter Christian and throughout the book is to kind of put the data of youth culture and the data of hip hop into a more forceful and sustained conversation uh, with theory and method. So it's kind of like where hip hop and religion meets postmodern theory. <laughs> um, so uh, since we're talking about theory and method a lot, um, maybe you could kind of uh, talk about the the final chapter, which is like almost kind of like a, a case study or your application of your own method. Um, and you look at this this documentary rides. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, first what this is, what this documentary is about? Um, but then you you use it as what you call a visual uh, a visual ethnography. Um, so how, how do you use this, and you know how does uh, your methodology come through in your your analysis of this? Yeah. So you know, rides is one of those documentaries that I can. And not keep out of the classroom, and I cannot keep out <laughs> of my own thinking and my own work. And not only because it's so visually stimulating, but um, there's a number of moves and things that take place in the documentary itself that I find highly fascinating. And so the chapter that you're talking about um, is chapter six that I call Faith in the Flesh. And um, this documentary, uh, you know, that came out, as I mentioned earlier, sort of chronicles uh, crump dancing and, you know, this uh, clown dancing. And, you know, um, it's really this thing that is so fascinating. I don't know if you've seen it, Christian, but the way that these young people uh, sort of move their bodies in this documentary is absolutely um, unbelievable. Um, And so, you know, David LaChapelle, you know, um, who, you know, this was a departure from the work that he normally does, um, but he kind of stumbles, you know, in, in L.A., he stumbles upon these young people moving their bodies with lightning speed um, in South Central L.A., right? It, it kind of catches him off guard, and um, it, it sort of encapsulates him in a way where he really wants to do this documentary and kind of follow these young people and figure out, um, why is it that they move their bodies in this way? And, and, and what is it about um, the, the, the kind of social geography of South Central L.A.? And what is it about the streets and, and, and how, you know, structural inequality kind of contributes to um, particular demographics? And so he chronicles this in his documentary, Rise. And um, what I want to do uh, with Rise in this chapter is kind of, you know, um, give this material sort of analysis, and I think I was overly ambitious in this chapter, I'll have to um, admit um, that, you know, I I try to make it sound more material than what I think it is, it's still highly textual, it's my riff on this documentary (laughs) that I'm watching that's already mediated in um, multiple kind of ways, Um, but what I want to do in this chapter is kind of play with this idea of faith in the flesh, right, so there's a number of moments that take place in the documentary that either 
sort of invoke religion or invoke church or kind of, um, you know, sort of hint at something more happening, that there's this event that sort of um, takes place. But I wanted to be able to analyze it in a way where I didn't look at faith in this kind of theological sense, right, where I wanted to kind of put a certain sort of um, importance and emphasis on the materiality um, of the body, but I did not necessarily want to, want to, you know, I didn't want to do it in this uh, theological uh, kind of way. And so I wanted to look at bodies a little bit differently in this chapter. And so, as I mentioned, I understand bodies as highly discursive. They're already mediated um, just by way of La Chapelle's own editing in this documentary. Um, but for me, the way that bodies emerge in this documentary, uh, they sort of represent what I call this mode of human possibility. Um, and so I wanted to look at the body as being the multiple site of um, significance. And in this chapter, I talk about, um, you know, among other things, this multiple site of significance, sort of including, you know, the ingenuity for the lack of means, for example. So young people in this documentary would talk about, you know, we don't have dance studios and, and we don't have, you know, um, extracurricular activities. We're all thought to be, you know, sports players. And what they're doing here is kind of speaking to their social anxieties, but also through the movement of their bodies, Christian, they're kind of giving this visceral social critique of a certain kind of experience um, of being marginal, right? And so they might use language of spirit, for example, uh, in the documentary, but I wanted to give an analysis that went beyond what we think might, what spirit might mean in a traditional uh, sort of way. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm doing um, in this chapter, uh, Faith in the Flesh. But what I also do is, um, again, I kind of try to introduce social theory into this chapter. So, um, you know, in thinking about this idea of what does it mean to live under a certain kind of uh, historical fixity um, and, and what does it mean to kind of as hip hop, you know, sort of often, you know, talks about what, is, what might it mean to make a dollar out of 15 cents? I wanted to take up this sort of desertoian idea of making do. And really, I also wanted to look at the manufacturing of the documentary itself because I wanted to talk about the ways that, um, you know, perceived constructions are sort of manufactured. And La Chapelle, you know, is sort of like the scholar <laughs> in some way, right? He is the ethnographer here sort of taping these young people and taping this, you know, this this dance, you know, phenomena that he finds fascinating. But he's also editing uh, this documentary in a variety of ways, right? For his, perhaps maybe his own social interests or what he thinks might be interesting to viewers or what he really feels might represent uh, these young people in an authentic kind of way. But he does a number of interesting moves in the documentary. So the beginning of the documentary um, is this kind of comparison with, uh, you know, the, the Rodney King riots, but also the Watts riots of uh, 65, right? The L.A. Watts riots of 65, right? So as this documentary is opening, we see this burning city in the background. Um, you know, gospel music is kind of played to, you know, sort of, um, you know, help this kind of reflective uh, sort of feel. And then it, it, it kind of fast forwards to 1992, and we see the same kind of theme happening, right? That residents of L.A. are outraged. You know, the Rodney King incident just take place. Gospel music, again, kind of guides our reflection. The voice is sort of narrating, you know, um, over the music. And, you know, we are told that this is where we grew up. And we were kids. We grew from this. And, and this is where we still live. So um, 
it very much in that moment reminded me of Anthony Penn's complex subjectivity that's kind of rooted in a certain sort of fixity um, of, of historicity, that there's this play with historicity there. And it's a certain kind of structure that is already structuring the viewer to kind of uh, go into this documentary in a certain, uh, you know, kind of way. Um, so also in this way, and similar to, you know, to earlier chapters in religion and hip hop, it's rooted in a certain kind of crisis and it's rooted in a certain kind of uh, pathology. So um, when we hear from participants, we are also hearing um, about the, 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 the crisis of everyday life being 45 minutes from Hollywood, right? Being in this environment that some of them call Hollywoods. And so what I try to do is I try to put my earlier ideas to kind of test in an ethnographic um, sort of way. So as you know, I put complex subjectivity uh, sort of to test, and I'm showing, you know, where making do is evident, and I'm kind of putting deserto uh, to test here, and I'm thinking about survival as meaning-making. And, you know, one of the most poignant um, aspects of this documentary scenes, perhaps, is where La Chapelle does this sort of diasporic side-by-side um, between this crump session that is happening, uh, Christian, where one of the participants, Daisy, you know, sort of um, just falls out. Perhaps she's exhausted from crumping. Some say she was slain in the spirit, you know, in a more Christian, you know, kind of theological sort of way. We don't know what happened with Daisy, but she was crumping. And, you know, um, one of the producers asked one of the participants, hey, what is going on here? And one of the participants said, you know, we've been, this is what we've all been waiting on. She just struck. And so what's interesting about that moment is that La Chapelle in his editing decides to do this sort of side-by-side comparison with um, some African tribe doing some tribal dance. And I'm assuming they're African. I don't know who these people are or where he took this, <laughs> where he took this clip from. But, but the way that, I mean, it's masterful in his um, sort of uh, comparative move there where on one, you know, on one hand we're watching, you know, some tribe doing some sort of uh, tribal dance, and then we're looking at these crumpers and, you know, uh, folk, you know, sort of uh, wiling out, right, uh, in this crumb circle, on the other hand, and it's so eerie, Christian, because he's able to make the movement so synonymous, so it literally looks like the movements are in sync, and for me that is the perfect moment to talk about manufactured constructions, right, and so La Chapelle being a sort of ethnographer of sorts, but also, you know, being the anthropologist and being the sociologist, he is constructing connections through a certain kind of editing. And I feel that that is also what we scholars of religion do when we look and hunt for the religious and culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'll have to look at that. I haven't, I've seen parts of this, but I've never seen the whole thing. So it sounds really interesting. Um You've talked to us for a long time, uh, so I will let you go, but not yet, because um, you you have a lot of really interesting projects going on, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of these. Could you could you tell us a little bit, maybe first about how your your research in uh, religion and hip hop is moving forward, and what kind of things you're doing with that? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned in religion and hip hop, I might um, my memory might not be serving me correctly. <laughs> Uh, right now, but one of um, the areas that we lack in the study of religion and hip hop, well, we now finally have an AAR group um, on uh, religion and hip hop, so that's fantastic. And we're going into um, our third year, so it's the first ever uh, group on hip hop and religion at the American Academy of Religion, and we're really trying to encourage theory, method, 
um, in that group, which is critical approaches to the study um, of religion and hip hop. But alongside of that, uh, one of the areas I feel that we're missing in religion and hip hop scholarship, as I mentioned earlier, are really works that kind of get into theory and method, but also really just kind of textbook style, um, you know, works that can really put what is growing very fastly when we have books coming out, you know, left and right on religion and hip hop um, from a variety of corners in the academy. And what we really lack, Christian, is a kind of textbook that can bring these things together. So uh, currently, Anthony Penn and I are working on two projects. Uh, one is a religion and hip-hop reader that kind of puts together previously published um, essays on religion and hip-hop, just kind of giving students a sort of larger overview of the terrain of the field, um, kind of where we've been with the scholarship and where we're headed and, you know, kind of creating critical introductions to um, you know, a number of formative pieces that have been uh, really important um, in this growing field. And then we also have a, a new volume on religion and hip-hop, The New Terrain, um, which really brings together the sort of cutting-edge work that's happening in the study of religion and hip-hop. So we have those two kind of textbook-style uh, works, you know, um, that we're undertaking right now. We really hope that they sort of contribute to um, you know, uh, the, the larger learning of religion and hip hop, but also just resources as courses on religion and hip hop and theology are growing throughout the country and just courses on hip hop that might include a section, um, on religious studies or, or religion and hip hop. Uh, we hope that those kinds of works would be useful. And I also, um, so as you know, I was, uh, at Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark college for two years and, um, I'm excited to announce that I'm making my way to Lehigh University in the fall, and I will I will be sharing a position between religion studies and Africana studies. So I'm really excited um, about that. But while I was in uh, Portland, Oregon, at Lewis and Clark College, I wrote a book on race in Portland, uh, which I call Blacklandia: The Subtleties of Race in Portland. So hopefully. Uh, soon I will have some new news to share about that book. But really, that book is not an academic book. It's more of a general public book where um, it's auto-ethnographic. And I kind of chart what race is like in this very lefty, very progressive city that wears its progressiveness on uh, their sleeves in interesting ways, uh, you know. And, and, and so it's kind of like, you know, paranoid, you know, racially paranoid black girl kind of meets stuff white people say in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of culminates as this project where, you know, for a long time, um, and, you know, being at Lewis and Clark was great and the students were awesome. Um, but I often ask myself, how did someone like me end up in Portland, Oregon? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those fascinating places, but also uh, fascinating in terms of religion in the Pacific Northwest in particular. So, um, not only is Portland not racially diverse, but it's also considered to be one of the least religious uh, sort of places uh, throughout the United States and probably the Northwest in general. And so when I got to Portland, Christian, I was very interested in religion and youth culture. How, um, I mean, I don't really even remember seeing that many churches in Portland, uh, to be honest with you. And, and a lot of the conversations that I would have with young people, religion is something that was not important to them. Poverty is important. And, you know, LGBTQ rights are important. 
Um, but religion is not something uh, that registered as important on their scale. And so I was very interested in that. And so, you know, given a lot of the work that has come out um, about the nuns, right, and about the kind of irreligion of America and the growing rise of non-believers, I became very interested in what does the landscape of religion in Portland look like. And so uh, with a colleague at Warner Pacific College, Cassie Trentez, I started this project called Remaking Religion. Uh, so looking at the grammar of religion and, and youth culture, and we're going into our second year of that in new and exciting ways. And so we started off with this kind of paper-based format of a survey that we've revised and now we're doing surveys on iPads, which are very interesting <laughs> and, and, and helpful. And so um, we've also sort of taken a revision to that project by kind of getting away from trying to search for the religion and youth culture or how young people practice religion to uh, really looking at the social inheritance of religion and looking at the habitus of religion and looking at the role that race and class play and how certain demographics understand this thing called religion and what is everyday life for young people in Portland uh, sort of look like. And so that's the remaking of religion project that we're very excited about. And then also, um, as I'm sure you're aware of, um, we have a pretty great group called Culture on the Edge uh, that, um, you know, Russell McCutcheon was able to put together. And so it's sort of this, you know, um, think tank of uh, amazing people uh, that come together to think about um, the way that identity is sort of posited in the study of religion and what makes claims to identity possible in the study of religion and what types of rhetorical uh, strategies and strategies of identification are at work in the study of religion. And so that group is called Culture on the Edge, and we just got a new book series with Equinox, of which Stephen Ramey is the series editor for. And we have two really exciting volumes uh, that will be forthcoming. And so uh, that's the Culture on the Edge project, and we're really excited about that. And so those are the things that I'm currently up to, and we'll see what's next. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks thanks for making time to talk to me because obviously you are very, very busy. Um, so it was it was great talking to you, and I thank you again. Christian, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Monica Miller about her great new book, Religion and Hip Hop, published by Rutledge in 2012. Thanks again for listening.